So, Jay, who's the first mutant? I remember hearing it was Namor, but I was thinking Apocalypse is way older. There are a number of mutants who've been around longer than Namor, Miles, but as far as I know, the oldest is probably the Forever Man. The who's a what? The Forever Man. His name varies between incarnations, but he's retroactively immortal, so when he dies, he immediately resurrects, usually as a baby or a kid. Sounds handy. To a point. Anyway, he's been around for ages, way longer than Apocalypse, although he's a lot less prominent because mostly he's kind of a crank who thinks everything was better in the old days, which is also how he accidentally indoctrinated his kid into becoming a supervillain. Was his kid a mutant? He was not. He was just a violent anachronist. What, like the SCA? A very little bit like the SCA, but you know, set in a different era and with very, very different goals, um, so early 20th century. So he waxed his mustache, wore 20s fashion. That's not so bad. And his big plan was to return America to what he considered its glory days by... Being a hipster? Killing everyone under the age of 65. What?! Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 309 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And Miles, I couldn't figure out quite how to fit it into the cold open, but do you want to know what that villain's name was? Because it's great. Oh, the one who was trying to kill all the young people? Yeah. Yeah, so it wasn't his actual name, but the name he chose for his villainy was uh, Turner D. Century. Okay, my respect for that villain has gone up by like 4% knowing that his name was Turner D. Century. The special guy. That's very much along the Edward Nigma school of real names, or for that matter, Otto Octavius. Yeah, but that wasn't his real name. That's the amazing part. His real name was like Cliff or something like that. <laughs> I mean, okay, if you get powers, if you have some nefarious agenda, you might as well choose a play on words new name, because, like, who's going to stop you? Um, the Avengers, mostly. Oh, well, uh, well, until then, it'll work out great. Anyway, we are at something of a milestone. We are finally, after what feels like forever, getting to the end of our first cycle of coverage of the X-Books we cover after Age of Apocalypse. Oh, that's such a weird feeling. It, it feels like I kind of want to prolong this because I know what's coming next, and maybe if we can linger in this catching back up period forever, Onslaught just won't happen? Oh, no. Onslaught is inevitable, as every other issue in this era tells us. Although not these issues, to my surprise. Uh, that's true, that's true. I guess Excalibur wasn't really on board. Uh, yet. Yeah, there's, there's surprisingly little Onslaught foreshadowing here, and I really appreciate that. Indeed. So, this may be the first Excalibur episode that some listeners have listened to if they jumped on with Age of Apocalypse or right after. So, let's talk a little bit about what happened to Excalibur, you know, previously. Now, Excalibur is Britain's premier superhero team, and it's been through some changes since its starting lineup. Who's still around? Well, we still have most of that lineup. We have the teleporting Kurt Wagner, a.k.a. Nightcrawler, and the sometimes intangible Kitty Pride, a.k.a. Shadowcat. Both of them are former X-Men. From the non-former X-Men side of the lineup, wow, that was awkward, we have Elemental Metamorph and on-again, off-again mutant Megan. And her boyfriend, Brian Braddock, 
formerly Captain Britain and now the much more mulleted and time-displaced and time-replaced Britannic. There were a few members who joined the team briefly just before the Age of Apocalypse and have since disappeared and will never be mentioned again. We're not going to bother tracking them either. We do have a couple of semi-team members right now, though. We have Douglock, who appears to be a cybernetic amalgamation of dead new mutant Doug Ramsey and Doug's alien bestie, Warlock. Douglock is actually just Warlock, but we're not going to find that out for a long time yet. However, we know, so you know too. We also have newcomer Pete Wisdom, formerly of British intelligence organization Black Air, currently with Excalibur in a somewhat ambiguous and slightly antagonistic role. He is also nominally there just as an observer, but he's going to be active with the team pretty much immediately. Ever since Excalibur's lighthouse headquarters was detonated across all realities, a long story which you can catch up on in our previous episodes, the team has been stationed off the coast of Scotland, specifically on Muir Island, home of geneticist and researcher Dr. Moira McTaggart, who is emphatically not considered to be a mutant at this point in continuity. And that's important because Moira has had her hands full researching the legacy virus, a mostly mutant-targeting AIDS allegory that has just infected, as far as we know, its first human, Moira herself. Now, obviously, Dawn of X... And, and House of X and all of that is going to mess with this royally. But for now, in the status quo that we're looking at, as far as everyone, including the writers, knew this was the case. Also with Moira on the island is someone whose name is going to be familiar for folks who were coming in or familiar with this stuff mostly via the series The Gifted, and that is Dr. Rory Campbell. He's a psychologist who may be destined to become Ahab, the anti-mutant houndmaster of the Days of Future Past timeline. That's not good. It's not great. When last we left our heroes, Pete Wisdom, at the behest of Black Air, was accompanying Excalibur to Genosha, an apartheid metaphor nation in the midst of post-revolution upheaval. Unfortunately, their plane got shot down. Fortunately, it didn't crash. Unfortunately, what prevented it from crashing was the end of the world. Thankfully, the world has been unended thanks to the heroic actions of a lot of folks over in the Age of Apocalypse, so we're basically right where we were. Crashing a plane, straight into Excalibur 87, with the somewhat on-the-nose title, Back to Reality. This issue is written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Ken Lashley, inked by Tom Wegerson, colored by Joe Rosas, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And you're right, Jay, we jump right into the Midnight Runner, Excalibur's kind of excellently named high-tech airplane thingamabob, being shot down over Genosha. Thankfully, we have a couple of quick-thinking team members. Megan asks Britannic to use his engineering knowledge to expose the broken power feeds, and then she uses her elemental metamorph powers to just sort of convince the electricity to bridge that gap. Electricity, looking for somewhere to go, lost its way home, and all I have to do is give it a little push. Megan is clever as hell. Something that comes up periodically in the strip is that she's not, she doesn't really have any former education. But one of the things I really like that Ellis remembers pretty consistently is that she's really smart. She's really good at thinking on her feet. And the fact that she doesn't necessarily have a lot of the preset beliefs and ideas about how things work that people do means that she can use her powers in ways that I think a lot of her teammates wouldn't necessarily think of. Exactly, yeah. She's a very empathic character, both, you know, supernaturally and just psychologically. 
And for her, there's no reason that empathy wouldn't extend to something like electricity itself. I also really appreciate that this incarnation of the book remembers that Brian Braddock is a pretty brilliant scientist. Like, before he started wearing tights and running around getting knocked over a lot, he was an engineer, a, a physicist specifically, I believe. I think it's incredibly bold of you to assume that he did not run around wearing tights and getting knocked over during that era. He just didn't do it as a superhero. Oh, that's fair. That's fair. You can do that in pretty much every industry. I yeah, mean, like, I think all about... we know is that he wasn't officially a superhero then. We, we really don't know what he did in his private life. The number of spandex-clad pratfalls I take in my IT job, I tells ya. But we saw a character very much... Uh, at odds with his previous incarnation for a while. During Lobdell's run of Excalibur, Captain Britain got lost in the time stream and came back as this yelling all the time confused man who had basically lost his mind through excess time travel, and it was not a great take on the character. And I appreciate that in this version of the book, Ellis is basically saying, yeah, he's, he's kind of getting over that stuff. Remember how he used to be a scientist? Let's focus on that. That take was especially frustrating because we lost one of the best characters on the team for it, and that's Rachel Summers Phoenix, who basically swapped out with Captain Britain in the time stream and is now having her own private adventures over, over in the cable series, or will be in a decade or two. We'll see. Right, yeah. So, the team is basically fine, thanks to the uh, character de-assassination of Megan and Brian, and the plane does manage to make it way make its way relatively safely to Genosha. Relatively safely is the import is, is is important to remember because Genosha is not really a very safe place to be, especially right now. For folks of you who are coming in without prior knowledge of Genosha, because we haven't really spent a lot of time here since getting back, Genosha started out as a metaphor um, apartheid state. I think mostly a metaphor for South Africa. It was run by humans, and uh, residents were tested for mutations early in life, and if they were X-gene positive, they were turned into mutates. Those were mind control, they were assigned numbers rather than names, and their powers were altered to be whatever the Genosian state needed in terms of free labor. There was an uprising, they were overthrown. Now there's nominally a coalition government, but there are still a lot of humans who are upset with the current status quo, and there are still a lot of mutants and former mutates who wish that the current government would crack down a lot harder on that. Honestly, I'm with them there. This whole place is a mess, and I gotta say, I know I'm a naive optimist often, and that's certainly the case in comic books. Like, at the end of the Extinction Agenda, it seemed like everything was going to be okay in Genosha. We had the horrible oppressive government overthrown, we had a human mutant coalition who was going to try to fix things, and of course it all went to hell because that's what you do in fiction in general. You have things go to hell so you have good stories to tell. Miles, if there's anything that the first run of X-Factor should have taught us, it's that killing Cameron Hodge doesn't actually solve a lot of problems. It's true. And also he just comes back. Every freaking time he just comes back. Yeah, he's a remarkably persistent villain. It's but he's true. not actually in this story. We have another persistent villain in this one. Yes, we do. So the team has been in Genosha for a couple of weeks, because remember, there's a two-week gap between when the Age of Apocalypse got undone and where all the books picked back up. And in those two weeks, apparently not much actually happened because the team's just been waiting around doing nothing. Uh, doing nothing? Excuse me, Douglock has very clearly been watching Speed Racer cartoons, which I think is very important work. 
<laughs> this is true, yeah. Uh, when the plot proper starts up and the team goes to investigate the stuff they were in Genosha for in the first place, which is figuring out uh, where the human resistance, I guess, has picked up their anti-mutant weaponry, um, Doug Locke picks them up in a Jeep and is just spouting pop culture reference after pop culture reference. Steve McQueen and Bullet! Gene Hackman in The French Connection! Speed Racer! Because Megan has been showing Doug Locke a bunch of television. And I appreciate this because we know that Megan grew up on television when she was a little kid hanging out in a trailer all the time because she was too furry to be around bigoted people. And that's where she learned about the world. Doug Locke is kind of a new entity. Like, when the Phalanx created him out of whatever bits of Doug and Warlock they did... Uh, he didn't really know much about the world, and so it makes sense that he would learn the same thing too, especially since that was Warlock's deal. When Warlock came to Earth, pop culture was kind of the only reference that he had. So I would actually differentiate there, because I think Megan used pop culture to sort of derive and extrapolate her view of the world. Warlock used it much more to construct his own identity and presentation. Yeah, no, I, I think you're completely right, and Doug Locke is very much doing the same thing. Uh, it's a nice little connection. It's nice to mine those bits of continuity. That's one of the things I really enjoy about the ever-shifting lineups of the various X-teams in particular and superhero teams in general, is you get all these new facets of characters to bounce off of each other in interesting ways. Yeah, and I think good writers latch into that and really do a lot with, with intra-team relationships. Totally, yeah. Well... The investigation of these magical mutant-killing bullets—I don't know why they made mutant-killing bullets, they could just use bullets— Right? —is interrupted because suddenly a bunch of human guerrillas, who you can tell are bad guys because they're wearing green and lavender armor, which are secondary colors, which, as we know, are total bad guy hallmarks, they start just slaughtering nearby starving mutates, yelling a bunch of genuinely horrifying bigoted shit. Mutate maggots! You ruined our country! All of a sudden, you're afraid of a little hard work cozying up to the stinking coalition government. Well, here's your welfare check. Oh, man. Uh, the more things change. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting and frustrating about reading X-Men comics right now is we talk about the heavy-handedness of the mutant metaphor and the heavy-handedness of a lot of metaphors here. And honestly, in America, in September 2020... Nothing feels heavy-handed anymore. Nothing, none of these metaphors feel over the top. Yeah, yeah, subtlety um, has been a useful storytelling tool at times, and sometimes you just don't really need it, I guess. So they, they, get, they get in a dust-up, and they end up getting one of the bullets that they've been sent to investigate. I want to talk about these bullets, because what the hell is happening here? Okay, the bullet that we see held up to the panel is this long rifle-looking bullet, but it has a screaming skull face, like, shaped into it or carved into it or something. W what? W what's going on? I mean, someone also mentions that the bullets are biting them earlier on, and I gotta say, do you remember the, the toon bullets in, in who's, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Oh, I, I do. Like, they were each little people. Like, there was, a, there was a Mexican bandito stereotype that has not aged very well, for instance. Yeah, like, that, that was all I could think of once we saw the bullets with faces. Oh, see, I was actually thinking of, um, perhaps less directly, but also from an animated movie, um, well, partially animated in both cases, uh, the vapor skull that rises out of the deadly nightshade potion in The Nightmare Before Christmas. That's just such an exaggerated, I am a skull, kind of look. 
Okay, I mean, so... What do these bullets do that normal bullets don't, other than yell? Well, they bite, apparently. I mean, okay, the bullets are biting me. I think that's just meant to be a sort of visceral, vivid illustration of, of this person painfully dying. But maybe they actually bite, yeah. I don't know, it's weird. Yeah, like, like I thought it was just someone who was talking about being shot at first, but no, once once we saw the bullets, and also it was someone who looked like they were being missed, so I assumed that they were they were being literal, because these bullets do have mouths and tiny little bullet teeth. It's so bizarre. I kind of wonder whether that was a writing choice or whether Ken Lashley was just, I don't know, let me draw some creepy skull face bullet. I am curious about that as well. Well, we certainly find out a little bit more about the bullet soon because Governor Jenny Ransom talks to Brian a little bit later. She is the governor of the Human Mutant Coalition that's trying to make Genosha not suck so much. And she knows, based on what her parents have told her, that the bullets were actually made from the skin of a mutant who was under supervision of Brian's dad 20 years ago. That's fucked up. Right? Philip Moreau takes the team into his father's lab to look into the records of when these bullets were created 20 years ago, and I feel like this would be a good time to talk a little bit about Philip Moreau and Jenny Ransom, because they've been around for a while. Right. Philip Moreau and Jenny Ransom were actually our first introduction to Genosha. They were a couple. They were teenagers. Um, Philip was the son of the gene engineer, the guy responsible for basically making the mutates. Jenny was his next-door neighbor and longtime girlfriend who turned out to be a mutant. And so when she turned out to be a mutant, Genosha was like, all right, we're going to put you in a skin suit, change your powers, brainwash you, and enslave you. And Philip was not pleased. And that was the start of the Genosian resistance, which I got to say is kind of awesome. That was the start of the Genosian Revolution. There had been Genosian resistance going back pretty far, I think. Uh, true, true. So, yeah, they're going to be our Genosian uh, representatives for a long-ass time. They're going to be portrayed very differently at times. Like, way later in Cable, which is where the Genosian arc will be resolved. We actually don't get much of it in Excalibur, weirdly enough. Uh, all of a sudden, Philip Moreau is going to be this grizzled, chain-smoking, bare-knuckle, brawling badass, which is- What the hell? Yeah, he was like a teenager that just wanted to neck with his girlfriend and got very upset when bigotry got in the way. And then, I don't know, I, I guess it's just, uh, maybe the smoke-free class of 2000 that we were part of had a point. Like, you shouldn't smoke because it'll give you lung cancer and turn you into an action movie stereotype. There are so many reasons. So many reasons. <laughs> yup. Uh, but that actually bugs me in Cable. This is a bit of a tangent, but... Part of the deal with Jenny Ransom is that when her powers were changed, they were altered into her being, like, a physical powerhouse. And she was tall and muscular and strong, and Philip was just a normal guy. He's just a normal human. And so turning him into that diehard-looking motherfucker and forgetting that she's supposed to be the physical badass, I think, takes away one of the more interesting aspects of them as characters and as a couple. Well, I think maintaining that stature and the physical differentiation would make sense, but I also think it would make total sense for Jenny to not use her powers in that way and to, to avoid identifying with that, that part of, you know, what had been done to her. Yeah, but they just make her appearance really generic. And honestly, Ken Lashley in this issue does also, and, and that's a little sad. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Anyway, point being, uh, they do get into the lab thanks to Kitty's phasing and Doug Locke's technology. I guess you don't need a rogue when you have Kitty and Doug Locke. Uh, the rogue from D&D, &D, not like rogue from the X-Men. They're like a collective rogue. 
They are. What they find inside in the computer records is that the gene engineer, Philip's dad, was actually given the technology used for the mutate bonding process. And as has been alluded to, he was given that by the Sugar Man, a character from Age of Apocalypse who managed to make it into the regular reality's past. I don't like this. Honestly, I think part of why Genosha works so much is because, I mean, yeah, they have high technology, but it's a superhero comic. Everyone has high technology. But it seems relatively down to earth. It's a clear political metaphor. There's not a bunch of over-the-top science fiction nonsense going on. And when you have a guy who's basically a giant head with sharp teeth and tattoos that comes from an alternate dystopian dimension and suddenly is a genetic engineer retconned into the past of a place like this, I think it kind of cheapens it. Yeah, I think it's really important to Genosha as a concept that you don't really have to hand humans the technology to do horrible things for them to do those horrible things. They'll find it. That's true, yeah. I don't know. I mean... I don't mind the idea that we have characters that come from Age of Apocalypse. Like, overall, I like Nate Gray. I think Dark Beast is an interesting villain. Holocaust, eh, I could take him or leave him. But the Sugar Man just seems pointless. Yeah, he is... I mean, we've talked about this before. He's not a character who I would have brought over, and I don't think he's a character whose presence in 616 has ever really added much. Ah, alas. Well... He does add something here, because he's been remotely monitoring all of this, uh, just like Dark Beast was remotely monitoring some stuff back in Generation X that we covered recently. And so Sugar Man blows up the site and all of its records. So Before they can identify him, I believe. They just know that Moreau has gotten his stuff from some kind of outside force or party. Exactly. So that's pretty much the end of Excalibur's involvement with Genosha. It seemed like this plotline was going to be a really big deal as of the issue before Age of Apocalypse. Turns out it doesn't really go anywhere. At least not for them. It does go somewhere for the two Black Air agents who are watching mysteriously from the shadows, twirling their metaphorical mustaches, talking about how Excalibur has done their work for them because the secrets of Genosha have been stirred up and Black Air will skim those secrets away. Black Air is very, very creepy and evil and conspiratorial. This is quite clear. So as we go into the Dream Nails trilogy, which is what, what we're going to talk about next, I want to take a minute to talk about Black Air and what they are. Black Air is the several generations later replacement for WHO, the Weird Happenings Organization, which we saw a lot of in the original Captain Britain series and then in earlier Excalibur. The Weird Happenings Organization, of course, were pretty much straight up an analog for UNIT from Doctor Who. And they were delightful. They were. They were a lot sillier. They were a lot more prone to wacky, you know, multiversal hijinks. Black Air is much more about weaponizing those wacky um, multiversal hijinks. So Pete Wisdom is a Black Air agent. I guess at this point, a recently former Black Air agent, because Genosha with Excalibur was supposed to be his last mission before he was finally off. He was supposed to be going along as just an observer. And... We mentioned, you know, that that arc, the Genosha stuff, doesn't really come back, but what does come back that it establishes very firmly is that he's got pretty severe combat-related PTSD from his time in Black Air. That's part of why he wants out. This is something I think a lot of people forget about Pete Wisdom. Like, everybody remembers him as the hard-drinking, chain-smoking, stereotypically British, sassy asshole. And he is those things, don't get me wrong. I mean, he's a specific flavor of stereotypically British, saying just stereotypically British... As, as a generalization, takes me in a very different direction than Pete Wisdom. Okay, that's a fair point. Yeah, I don't want to overgeneralize. Uh, England is an entire nation um, with, with much variation within it. And several stereotypes. And several stereotypes. But 
What Pete Wisdom also is, is, like you alluded to, a complex, damaged character. And so much of the way he comes off is him essentially protecting the vulnerable parts of himself. He doesn't want to open up to anybody because he's been so badly burned by the world in so many ways. And that makes me like him a lot more. He's not the one-note character, I think, that his reputation would suggest. He's also remarkably self-aware in that regard. He is, yeah. And that's one of the things I like about the Dream Nails trilogy. Like, so much of the Dream Nails trilogy is about Pete and Kitty getting to know each other and getting into a romantic relationship. And as such, it really gets into who they each are at their core in a way that, I gotta say, really works for me. So Dream Nails takes place over over three issues. Um, we're gonna split up the A-plot and B-plot. The, the A-plot follows the, the stuff we talked about with Black Air. The B-plot's what's going on on Muir Island. We're gonna touch on that a little bit later. It starts with Excalibur 88, which is written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Larry Strowan with Derek Gross, Ken Lashley, and Jeff Moy, inked by Cam Smith with Derek Gross, Tom Wesgren, Philip Moy, Don Hudson, and Jimmy Palmiotti, colored by Joe Rosas, and lettered by Comicraft. This era of Excalibur is not so great about artistic consistency. Yeah, the art is all over the damn place, but it does include Larry Stroman in the places it's all over, and I'm for that. That means we get some truly glorious crowd scenes, and what I keep thinking of as NPC characters, just like characters that have a couple of lines, who have widely varied fashion and body types, and it's so much fun to look at Larry Stroman's art. I could just get lost in those panels. So... Dream Nail starts, as spy stories do, with Pete Wisdom getting a mysterious message from a friend in need of sub-Rosa medical attention, and with no one else available, Kitty flies him down to deal with it in, in the Midnight Runner. Kitty does not like Pete Wisdom. Like, they've just been bickering constantly since he showed up in number 87, and that makes sense. Like... She is a compassionate, kind, and very smart person who takes no shit, and Pete Wisdom is basically entirely bullshit and enjoys antagonizing people, but this is a very kitty thing to do, piloting someone she dislikes somewhere to help a stranger. I buy that. They're also both characters who enjoy friendly bickering, and it's not so much that they ever stop fighting as that their fighting becomes friendly. Exactly, yeah. So, when they get to England, the mystery thickens, because this guy Cully's safe house slash bolt hole is empty, except for the scattered papers that are all around, and I'm losing my body, scrawled on the wall. What do you think that's scrawled on the wall in? So, I think it's supposed to be blood, but it's colored magenta, which means that Cully is probably a predator, if it's blood. Predators have, predators have like, magenta fuchsia blood, right? You know, I'm embarrassed to admit, I've never seen a Predator movie. I'm not entirely sure, but I remember having a long conversation with someone who was the assistant editor on the Alien and the Predator comics, like, ten years ago about it, and about how she, she had to check blood color a lot in the reprints. I do not, however, remember with any degree of certainty which was which color. The next step is, is to a pub where all the weird British intelligence types hang out and where they learn that Cully is in fact dead and that he had died while serving as security chief of a black air project called Dream Nails. And this is one of those crowd scenes we were talking about. Like, the various secret agents that Pete Wisdom introduces Kitty to are just all over the place in terms of body type, from practically spherical to just bizarrely angled, emaciated people. It's just so much fun to look at Stroman panels. Okay, but consider how much more fun it would have been if this were a bar where the Who agents drank. 
like what kind of bar that would end up being. Oh, that's true. The Weird Happenings organization included way weirder people than Black Air. Well, and probably drank in way weirder places. And drank way weirder drinks. I mean, I'm pretty sure there were lots of, like, half pineapples and fried shrimp and stuff in all of their tiki drinks. So, to to solve the mystery, uh, Pete and Kitty head to the next logical step, which is the morgue. Nobody there knows for sure how Cully died other than of some kind of disease, but obviously someone doesn't want Kitty and Pete to find anything else out because on the way out, they are ambushed by black air shooters. Okay, two things. First of all, this scene works really well because during this attack, we see Kitty and Pete gaining respect for each other on the battlefield, as they not only use their very effective powers and skills, but are also really smart and have this natural teamwork between the two of them. I think this is the first time where they more than tolerate each other, or at least where they admit to themselves that they're more than tolerating each other, and it's very effectively written and drawn. Second thing... When they defeat the Black Air Hitmen, they realize that they're Black Air Hitmen because they're carrying Black Air ID badges. If you're trying to cover something up, wouldn't you maybe want to have your people, like, not have clear identification with them? So, here's what I think. They already know that Pete knows that Black Air's involved. And they're expecting to be successful. They're not expecting anyone to be pulling badges off dead agents. I guess that's true. They don't necessarily know that Kitty and Pete are the main characters, not them. I feel like everybody feels like they're the main character in the story that is life. I mean, I frequently don't, but... (laughs) Well, there is that. Maybe you can just be a Larry Stroman background NPC, and then at least you can look really, really interesting. Before dying horribly. Anyway, that brings us to Excalibur 89, Easy Tiger. This is written by Warren Ellis, penciled by David Williams, inked by Mike Miller, Mike Christian, and Philip Moy, colored by Joe Rosas, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And I want to say before we go in, so this this story arc has paired paired captions. It has Kitty captions, it has Pete captions. And in addition to different coloring, they have different fonts, and I hate Pete Wisdom's font. Yeah, it's sort of like this bizarrely gothic font. I feel like it would be quite at home on goth personal websites on Angel Fire back in the mid-90s. And like those websites, it is really damn hard to read. I've complained about this before with regards to comics, but unless something is specifically supposed to be illegible, you need to be able to read it without paying attention to the fact that you're reading it or it kills the pacing of the story. Now I'm just imagining Pete Wisdom with a little under-construction gif as a tie pin, and, like, a a list of all the web rings he's part of going down one of his sleeves. See, I'm imagining a Lockheed My Pretty Kitty page. Oh, that would be great, yeah. And it's just Lockheed smoking Pete's cigarettes, looking really angry. Do you think Pete Wisdom had a live journal and talked on it, like, a lot? I do not, because he was a secret agent, and they have fairly strict rules about that kind of thing, I gather. Oh, uh... Do you think he had one under somebody else's name? I do not, but I think Kitty definitely did. Yeah, she totally did. But we do see, like you alluded to, headshots of both Kitty and Pete in their respective fonts. Ooh, I also think that Kitty has definitely run at least one um, Cat's Laughing fan site on GeoCities. Oh, most assuredly, yeah. Well, as you alluded to, Jay, we do see Kitty and Pete uh, in their respective fonts, recapping the previous issue, ending with Kitty saying, I don't like him. Really. I don't like him. Kitty, I mean, pride. It's good in a crisis, I'll give her that. 
She's all right for a nosy cow. Of all Claremontisms to actually keep using, that insult is one of the ones I really wish had just kind of fizzled out. Yeah, me too. But they recover from their near-death experience in a neutral ground pub, like specifically a bar where everybody drinks and so you're not allowed to kill each other. Uh, kind of like in John Wick, I guess. And they have a drink and Kitty keeps needling Pete, just as he keeps needling her. Wolverine used to drink whiskey like that. Of course, he had a healing factor. But you don't even have insurance. I feel like this is a good time to talk about the age thing, because it's very clear that Pete and Kitty are flirting constantly in their bickering. They acknowledge that there's specifically a 10-year age gap, too. So you can pretty much place Pete, or, or, or place the age that Kitty appears to be based on that. Because Pete is, is in his late 20s, early 30s. Yeah, I mean, I do think that Kitty is clearly supposed to be at least 18, probably older. I mean, Ellis has stated that in interviews, but we have a little bit of potential evidence here if our research is correct. So she's drinking at a pub, right? Which implies she has to be a certain age. Now, these days, according to the internet, which may be right, there, the drinking age is mostly 18 in England. I'm not sure if that was the case in 1995. It may have been different then. But you can drink at 16 if you have a meal and if you're accompanied by an adult. Now, Kitty is accompanied by an adult, but there is no meal at the table and no, you know, mostly empty plates that would imply a meal. So if we want evidence that Kitty is of age, this kind of works. Yeah, they're in the official, like, secret agent neutral ground bar. I don't think they ID here, Miles. That may be true. Although, maybe they do, and maybe that's the reason those black hair agents had their IDs with them, because they were gonna, you know, pop off for a pint after murdering people. Well, maybe they were just gonna go to a different bar. That's, that's possible, I suppose. Although, I don't know, if you're a secret agent, I feel like you go to the secret agent bar. It's just cool. Yeah, but maybe you don't want to hang out with your, your colleagues in the evening. Maybe you don't even like them. Maybe you just want to get a chocolatini at Applebee's. Maybe you want to go to the clown bar and hang out with the clowns. Have you been to the creepy clown bar in Portland, or did that open after you moved away? I mean, I've been to a circus-themed bar in Portland. I haven't specifically been to a creepy clown bar. It has a clown room. There is a there is a creepy clown bar. It is specifically a creepy clown bar. There are creepy clowns. We went there after we saw the first It movie years ago. That sounds thematically appropriate. It was. Anyway, I don't know. I mean, I feel like a lot of people especially in the years since these, this story came out, since this era happened, have talked a great deal about whether or not Kitty and Pete's relationship is appropriate. And obviously that's gotten significantly more complex as we've learned more about Warren Ellis and his relationship to some of his younger female fans over the years. And so it's hard to look at it without that. I mean, for me, I think story-wise it works. I think it is reasonable, especially given how Kitty has been portrayed age-wise compared to somebody like Jubilee to see her as an adult, but it's kind of hard to escape the context, you know? Well, one of the things that I think I think it has go going for it, go I, I don't know if I mean that the relationship has going for it, but it's, you know, portrayal has going for it, is that I don't think there's any point at which it's particularly portrayed as a healthy relationship. Like, they're both obviously working out a lot of issues. Pete, who is the one who should be putting the brakes on things or not, is really is, is is messed up and is is doing things and is specifically running from a lot of his life in ways that I could see translating into thinking a relationship with something someone much younger was a good idea. Um obviously that's not a good excuse for it, but I think I think it's something that makes sense for both characters assuming 
that we take it as read that Kitty's an adult. Uh, yeah, I, I would completely agree. So, going on to things that make varyingly more or less sense. Pete is here partly to meet with an informant, to meet with one of his, his secret agent friends. And as it turns out, Dream Nails is indeed a black Arop, and the cover is called Easy Tiger. And Pete is shocked by this, because what Easy Tiger means is that it involves aliens. Easy Tiger is, is a cover for any project involving aliens, because the initials are E.T. Oh, man. So you could just as easily do emphatic turbine... Or, I don't know, extrasensory Tarasque. Excellent turtle. Excellent turtle. Or, as Pete Wisdom sums it up, The truth is out there, and it's got bloody great teeth. Thus cementing this arc as a direct X-Files reference, which it clearly is. We also get some secret background from the consultant on how Pete Wisdom is actually a good dude, just, you know, also a raging asshole. You can be both. So, they head over to Dream Nails. Kitty has has her, her newer Excalibur costume, but she's wearing her Shadowcat-era mask, which is a pretty good combo. And they bicker about whether she's coming along. She, of course, is, because she's an actual damn superhero. But that's really more there, again, to get more flirting in, because this is where we establish them as pretty into each other and resisting it as hard as they can. Not too hard, though. Like, I mean, at one point, Pete threatens to spank Kitty if she doesn't follow his lead, and she stands closer to him than she needs to while facing them to the ground. I do appreciate that despite the age difference, they are clearly evenly matched in terms of the intensity and uh, antagonism of their flirtation. Well, they get as far as almost kissing before they are captured by Black Air agents. But before that, um, they discover some of the secrets of how Cully died. He died when he was exposed to alien bacteria, uh, when one of the aliens bit through his suit. And they're going to transfer that data, but again, then black air agents show up, um, there's a gun to Pete's head, and he tells Kitty to phase and get the hell out of there, and she does. Which takes us to Excalibur number 90, Blood Eagle. Written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Ken Lashley, David Williams, Carlos Pacheco, and Larry Stroman, inked by Tom Wegerson, Mike Miller, Cam Smith, and Larry Stroman, and colored by Joe Roses and Ariane Lenshowick, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Woof. I know what a Blood Eagle is from Hannibal. I'm so proud of that that I got that reference. Um, so specifically, a Blood Eagle is is an extremely elaborate torture slash execution um mentioned in, in skaldic texts that may or may not have ever actually been used, but theoretically what you do to, to make one is, is sever someone's ribs from their spine in the back and then pull the lungs out of the holes to look like wings. This is what I think of as trying too hard. Jesus fucking Christ. Jay, that's horrifying. Yeah, it's kind of excessive. Wow. Yeah, no, it's horrifying, but again, it's also just, just kind of irritatingly excessive. Fair point, yeah. Although, I don't know, irritatingly excessive, I think, is a trait that would fit well with the villain who's interrogating Pete Wisdom. This is a bright yellow-skinned telepath named Shrine who works for Black Air. They're in a room that has been flooded with a virus, uh, which may also be a bacteria. Shrine refers to it as both periodically, and it really annoys me. Um, but the important thing about this contagion is that it reacts to stress by destroying flesh. I really appreciate how unnecessarily complicated that is. 
anyone who's been listening to the podcast for a while knows that uh, I, and I think both of us, approve of villains who are willing to go the extra mile to have a plot that is far, far more over the top than it needs to be. Right. Now, Pete is the guinea pig for a test drive. We know that Pete has had has some really bad memories, and Shrine, who's a telepath, has decided that he's he's going to stress Pete out by rifling through for all of the worst stuff um, in what seems like a very transparent echo of something that's going on elsewhere in this that we're going to get to a little bit later. Luckily, Pete is also a sneaky bastard, and he rifles through his own memories to make sure that the one that's front and center is going to freak Shrine out and upset him enough that the virus will turn on Shrine, not Pete. Or the bacteria. It could be the bacteria. Virusteria. Sounds like where viruses go to, you know, self-serve food. Mmm. Virus turkey tetrazzini. Uh, this reminded me a lot of a later Cable story, because I've been going through the Cable series recently, where Cable does something kind of similar with despair. Uh, interestingly enough, this is a story where Cable faces despair alongside Lee Forrester, who years before Cyclops faced despair alongside, and just like that story, Cyclops and Lee Forrester made out, Cable and Lee Forrester make out. Anyway, back to back to Black Air, where and Dream Nails, uh, where Kitty is doing a fairly non-violent diehard replay, and she ends up in an automated briefing about aliens, which is interrupted by actual aliens. I love these aliens so much. Before we get to them, though, let's talk a little bit about what Kitty discovers, because she finds out that Black Air has samples of not only these new aliens, but also of the Phalanx, way before the X-Men knew about the Phalanx. They have samples of the brood that they apparently got from the Hellfire Club. I really like this. Like, if this is going to be an X-File story, that's part of what you do. You show that the conspiracy has been has had its fingers in way more things than anybody ever thought. That their involvement goes back far before anyone believed. It makes conspiracies creepier, and it's very effective right here. I mean, shit, knowing about the phalanx like years before they were actually a thing on Earth—that's messed up. Okay, but what I'm really excited about here are the aliens who Kitty's about to encounter, and these are the uncreated, and they do not like the humans for good reason because the humans have been, you know, capturing them and torturing them. But they've also got a bigger reason that they don't like anybody. And they what they do, they, they ask Kitty if she believes in God, if she worships, worships every, anything. And then she's like, yeah. And they're like, well, God's dead. We killed God. Here's the deal. God was a large space bug who created the, the, this race. And um, they wanted to feel special, but God was always specialer. So they went out and they killed large space bug God. And they've spent the rest of their existence as a species being continually low-key pissed off that no one thinks they're cool. Well, yeah, specifically, they're really annoyed that any other races might believe in God because they're like, no, we killed him. You have to acknowledge this, damn it. They're worse atheists than Richard Dawkins. They remind me of me in middle school. Miles, Richard Dawkins is way worse than you in middle school. I guess that's true. Yeah, that asshole. But these aliens actually remind me, more than they remind me of myself in middle school, of Gore the God Butcher from J the beginning of Jason Aaron's recent run on Thor. Gore felt that gods oppressed their people, so after killing his people's own gods, he went around the cosmos as a serial killer of pantheons, which is such a good hook for a villain. So, but this is also specifically why I find the uncreated so hilarious. If they did that, it would make philosophical sense, but they're like, no. There was just the god, who was our god. That was god. We killed god, we're done. God's gone. 
Okay, that's it. That's it. Like, and they're in a multiverse where there are obviously like tons of gods hanging out and running around. I mean, enough that there's someone who's specifically a serial killer of them, as, as you mentioned. But they're like, nope, nope, we killed the giant space bug. It's over. I'm not saying killing a giant space bug isn't impressive, but it's not as impressive as they think it is. I love this. And we're going to see these guys again soon um, in, in Ellis's Dark Animus miniseries. Now, Pete manages to escape. We mentioned uh, that he, he turns his memories onto Shrine and thus the virus. Kitty gets away from the aliens by just phasing through them when they're like, you're going to die now. And she's like, OK, just runs through. And they almost kiss again, but are too busy recapping. Once again, as we've seen previously in Ellis comics, we don't actually see any of that. We just get in, in a brief conversation afterwards because Ellis is not great at pacing. And not great at endings. But he does end this arc with a single page of Pete and Kitty about to get real intimate. And so, yeah, there, there's no subtlety here. Like, they are definitely going to have sex. And so I'm very glad that from what I can tell, even if there is a large age gap, at least she's 18. Well, they're at least going to make out extensively on an airplane. I'm not sure how long the trip back is. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess it depends on how fast the plane goes. It is called the Midnight Runner, and so we know that if it's midnight, it goes at running speed, which honestly is not very fast for a plane. Well, and it's on autopilot. Anyway, I, I think we can stop there. I don't think we actually need to go into the details of that, um, because we've got some more story to cover, because as, as Pete and Kitty have been running around thwarting Black Air, things have been going down on Mirror Isle as well. Moira's been banging her head against how someone could have gotten into her computer systems to leak the knowledge that the legacy virus has spread to humans. She's also trying to figure out the legacy virus itself, because of course, not only is this personal, but she's always been a geneticist and she's always tried to help mutants. I do appreciate that as she walks some of Excalibur, the members who are not doing the Black Air thing, through the Legacy Virus, she's using not only data from her own research, but data that Scott and Jean brought back from 2,000 years in the future because, you know, comic books. Yeah, it's nice seeing someone remember that that data exists. And as far as the data breach, as it turns out, um, there's actually a pretty simple explanation for that. That is that um, the Xavier... Institute was networked to Muir Island. They blew up all of the computers there during the Phalanx Covenant, and that also completely nuked the security system. But what's more relevant to this arc is what Rory Campbell is doing on Muir Island, because he's a psychologist. He specializes in the field of control, you know, controlology. And he knows via a brief moment of exposure to the entire space-time continuum that there's a decent chance he's eventually going to become a supervillain named Ahab, who's one of the big bugbears of the Days of Future Past timeline. Right. Right now, he's asked Britannic, Brian Braddock, to use his engineering skills to create a very fancy holding cell, because one of the prisoners in Muir Island's psychiatric ward is a former acolyte named Spore. He's this guy who has pheromone powers that he uses to make people aggressive, to make them kill each other or themselves. A little while ago, he used those powers to almost get Nightcrawler to kill him, because he also apparently has a death wish. And I really like the idea that Rory, being a specialist in control, is obsessively controlling Spore himself. This is very much a, oh, I know why you went into psychology kind of situation. The answer is for all the wrong reasons, because it becomes increasingly clear that while Rory may have convinced himself that what he's doing he's doing for therapeutic purposes, he's really just torturing Spore. Right, because he's just belittling and mocking Spore and Spore's childhood trauma. Like, he was abused as a child, 
knowing that this holding cell that Brian built is made of a bunch of fucking laser bars that are going to zap the hell out of anybody who tries to get violent. He's trying to take that sense of control away from Spore in hopes that that will somehow make him more okay. Okay, I only have a bachelor's in psychology, but I'm pretty sure that doesn't work. Again, he says that he's trying to teach Spore to, em to empathize with, with Spore's victims, but again, that's clearly not what he's doing. And we learn that, you know, for absolute certain, because as he's mocking and belittling Spore on and on and on, ultimately he loses his shit and hits Spore with a chair leg, which triggers the laser system in the room. Yeah, uh, Rory's been using mood-stabilizing pills to make himself immune to Spore's powers. He runs out, Spore catches it, and uh, Rory's now missing his left leg. Ahab was known for having robot limbs, so this is a very clear step in the direction of him being an evil future pirate captain that hunts mutants. I think the only other thing happening on, happening on Muir Island that we need to actually touch on is that, that uh, Wolfsbane Rain Sinclair is now here. She has taken a leave of absence from X-Factor to come stay with Mora, who, as we know, has the legacy virus. And I think that pretty much closes the Dream Nails arc. It pretty much does. It's... It's a fun one. Like, it's very much this super secret agency stuff that Warren Ellis is so in love with in many of his other comics, but I think he does it pretty well. I think Pete Wisdom is an interesting character. I like his dynamic with Kitty. It's kind of cool to see Rory Campbell's inevitable descent into having fewer limbs and more evil. Yeah, that Rory Campbell is always going to remind me of, of that, that song that, that my cousin Will wrote. Um, the, 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 the sort of dirge about the baseball player who, who just lost all of his limbs one after another. No left leg. The Rory Campbell story. Yeah, that was amazing. Um, I think we've talked about that on the show before. I think we have. We also have listeners who have questions, not all of which are about baseball players whose arms and legs fall off. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, I've always assumed that Xavier named the X-Men after himself, but I realized that this could imply he also discovered and named the X-Gene. Is this the case? Do we know who discovered it? I am not sure who discovered the X-Gene, but as far as the name of the X-Men, neither of those is the case. Xavier named them the X-Men because, in his words, they <clears throat> possess an extra power, one which ordinary humans do not. That is why I call my students X-Men, for extra power. Oh, Chuck, the Silver Age was not kind to you between dialogue like that and that time you said you were in love with Jean. Incidentally, although I'm not quite sure how uh, Xavier's recent resurrection is going to interact with it, at least of his, as of his last death or the aftermath of his last death, Kitty Pride was the owner of the trademark to the name X-Men in the 616 universe. Oh yeah, back in X-Men Gold. Huh. So Once in a Blue Marvel asks on Tumblr, In Son of M, Quicksilver steals Terrigen crystals from Adelan and uses them to unlock some crude mutation. However, after the Infinity crossover, when the T-bomb explodes, shows that the Terrigen Mist is toxic to mutants. What's up with that? Uh, good catch, and that's something I wondered about myself. So I refreshed my memory, thanks to the internet. So Son of M was a miniseries that took place a little bit after House of M, so it took place a little bit after a lot of mutants had lost their powers, Quicksilver included. Since Quicksilver has a relationship with the Inhumans, who gained their powers from the Terrigen Mists, he figured he would try to use those mists to restore the powers of mutants like himself who had been depowered. Turned out it didn't really go very well. Often that would amp mutants' powers way, way up so they weren't controllable, and then the effect wouldn't be permanent regardless, so it was kind of the worst of both worlds. 
As for why the mists were so much more poisonous and fatal to mutants later, well, when Black Bolt of the Inhumans set off the Terrigen Bomb when he was fighting Thanos, that sent a bunch of Terrigen into the atmosphere. Apparently, when the mists mixed with Earth's atmosphere on a large scale, they became straight-up toxic to mutants, killing Cyclops, about 200 Madroxes, Madrices, Madri, and a whole bunch of others. I mean, to be fair, we fucked up our atmosphere pretty thoroughly, so, uh, yeah, I guess I buy that. Yeah, fair enough. Also, according to the first issue of the most recent volume of the Champions comic, there's a brand of soda in the Marvel Universe called Terrigen Mist, which, I gotta say, seems to be in very poor taste, and, like, if I was a mutant, I wouldn't want to drink it because I'd be worried it would kill me. Yeah, yeah, that's a real iffy name for a drink. Also, I would assume that the Inhumans have some kind of trademark there. They seem like the kind of people who would. I mean, Kitty has the trademark for the X-Men, and probably, uh, I don't know, Karnak must have it for the Inhumans. Oh, I, I just sort of generally assume that if it's anyone, it's Lockjaw. Could be Lockjaw. We're a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Uh, not Lockjaw yet, but who knows. But for now, let's hear from the angry Claremontian narrator. Oh, Ed. Ed, Ed, Ed. You thought you could walk away and never look back. Getting out would be as simple as canceling your pull list, didn't you? Now, looking at the fate of Brian Mackenwells, you've come to realize the cold, hard truth. You can't leave the X-Men any more than you can leave your own lungs. They're part of you now, pink, moist, and full of alveoli. Hope you survived the experience. Ugh, now I'm thinking about that Blood Eagle thing again. Yikes. Anyway, with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in New Fairfield, Connecticut in exile from Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes of our show come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for a visual companion to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next episode, to my great delight, the uncreated return. Along with the Starjammers.